Jean Young, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you back. You know, you're here back in May of last year, and you're the founder of C and CEO at Akita. Can you tell us a little bit about Akita and what you do there? Sure. Uh, Akita is the fastest, easiest way to see what API endpoints you have, what's slowest, and what's throwing errors. And so what Akita does is uh, API monitoring by uh, being drop-in, uh, using passive network traffic monitoring, if you're curious. And a lot of the magic of Akita is you don't need to do anything, no code changes. We just look at your API behavior, and then we tell you a bunch of stuff about your APIs. Yeah, I love that that part, especially like that drop-in part, because it's so different than like the other uh, monitoring things out there. Can you tell me like what that that actually looks like technologically? Like, what? It, how are you just dropping in, and I don't have to go instrument my code? How does that How does that work? Yeah, sure. So we use a, a technology called BPF, Berkeley Packet Filter, and specifically for people out there who are like really curious, we use Go Packet because we use Go. Um, and what that does is it um, we look at network packets. So a user, when they install the Akita agent, they uh, give us permissions to look at their network traffic, basically. We look at them, we reconstruct the network packets, or our, our agent does. And then um, behind the scenes, we have... Um, if you want to dig really deep, we have um, an intermediate representation of like the API structure and we actually reconstruct the entire API structure, path parameters, types, authentications, error codes, request types, response types, like a bunch of stuff and performance information. And then we use all of this uh, for making our dashboards um, back on the Akita console. Gotcha. And so like for that shape and structure stuff, that's like if I want to generate open API spec or, or use that for testing or what, what am I using that for? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So the thing that we do with it is we give metrics and errors based on it because the, like the shape of your API. So this is like, this is getting kind of in the weeds, but you know, this is software engineering daily. So <laughs> let's, let's do it. But, um, let's say you have, um, you have an endpoint that's like, you know, like payments, by user, like payment slash user zero, user one, user two, user three. And so one of the examples of things we infer is what's called path parameters. So we would smush all of those users into a single endpoint so that we would be giving you like latency and errors on that single endpoint instead of like, here's your 1000 like slash user and endpoints that you have. Um, that like for a while, we were just like, oh, that's like kind of like uh, table stakes. We, we need to do that in order to do other stuff because how can we do fancier stuff without doing that? And what we've discovered over the course of being Akita is that that alone is very useful for people because using other tools, like if you're using a gateway, you have to like tell your gateway, hey, these are all the same endpoint or other tools, like you give them mapping rules or something like that, or you just like end up monitoring a thousand different user endpoints. Um, but in this case, like we are telling you like, hey, see that one user endpoint, um, it, it's the one giving you all the errors. And so like that, that's the the big thing that, that we power using this inference. Um, but then we actually have a bunch of other stuff that um, it exports as a fully formed open API three spec. So we have users who do that and then they go on and um, use the spec in, in their other workflows. Other users, um, they just check out what we have. So we have like a fully explorable version of what we call the API map. So you can look at all your endpoints, you can dig in, you can see more information about each endpoint. You can filter on the endpoints by authentication. So you could quickly say like, show me everything that's not authenticated or show me everything that's using like these types of data. Like show me what has email, show me what has phone numbers. Um, there's, there's a lot of exploration you can do. And so our 
vision for the future is like we want to be drop in API insights. Like we're not the only tool that drops in. There's other tools you could just like turn them on without doing anything. But the structured inference, like the fact that we like infer the endpoint structures for you, the fact that we have all of this other data, you can imagine this powering a whole lot more than just basic metrics and errors. Yeah, yeah. I, I man, that first part that you were talking about, just like inferring the path parameters out of that. Like I use a lot of API gateway and Lambda and service stuff. And just like trying to parse the logs to tell like this, this number is an ID. It's not like a part of my actual path structure um, and being able to aggregate metrics. It's, it's impossible, which is. Yeah. Which is yeah. This is the thing that everyone who has tried to do this and um, what they've told back to us is like, look, this is the magic part of your thing. Cause I think for a while my team was like, Oh, like we have to build like really fancy insights. Like we were doing automatic change detection for a long time and that works. Okay. But you know what we had to make work very well to do that is the, the path inference in itself. And what people said was, hey, look, like, just give us more basic monitoring on top of this. Because, like, you know, we've had users turn off their CloudWatch and use us instead because CloudWatch, like, you, like that is also in some sense drop in. You're using AWS, just, like, turn on your CloudWatch. But what that's going to tell you is here are my errors across my system or here, like, you're having slow slowness somewhere in your system. Which endpoint actually matters a lot? And what is an endpoint? Like, sure, that's a philosophical question. But also, like, it's actually not that hard to tell what, what is an endpoint a lot of the time and you do want to combine that information and like do your reporting off of that instead of like user zero user one user two yeah, yeah exactly can you talk a little bit about how you do that particular thing like is it is it basically just like looking at the string and being like hey integers are probably a parameter or is it like statistical stuff where if you get a hundred thousand requests and a bunch of them look like this. Like how, how do you sort of parse that out without people telling you? Um, like many things, um, in life, it's a giant bag of heuristics. Um, so I would say like the, like we started off with a simple, um, with a very simple assumption that if you're seeing the same, like the, the same thing vary in the same place a bunch of times, because like we're, we're storing structured representations of all the paths, right? So like every path, like location is kind of a structured thing. So we know the locations that we're seeing stuff. So if you're seeing like a bunch of different things across like even just a, a few endpoints we can start being like we're pretty sure this is a path now um and like we we just built like off off of that you can imagine there's there's a few other things like we're not doing like actually anything too too fancy um but there is a long tail of like edge cases for this kind of thing and like that's 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 really the reason it took like it's it's like there's no magic bullet like oh we had an insight like no <laughs> we, we we worked off the assumption that if you're seeing if you're seeing things vary a bunch it's likely a path parameter and then there's just a bunch of work you do to make that actually work and then there's a bunch of exceptions like if you see it this way and not that way <laughs> then it's not um yeah and, yeah. and so so that's looking at a ton of data. Is that like mostly an offline process? Like occasionally you'll just run some stuff over it or is that like doing that oh, in more well, real so time? Oh, well, so here's the other crazy thing. We're doing this online. So we're doing like near real time because we're doing our monitoring off of this, right? So like I think at some point if we want to get even closer to real time, we probably need to decouple some of this like like schema generation from, uh, from, from the monitoring a little bit more, but like we're doing this with a two to three second or two to three minutes. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, lag, uh, right now where we're like taking this, we're incorporating all of the new traffic we're seeing, like, are there new endpoints that like show up in the monitoring? And this is, this is all happening in, in like a two, three minute period. Wow. 
Wow, that's wild. And for like, especially like that long tail, super hard edge case, like do you allow people to sort of like give you a regex or something like that and, and give you hints or do you just like, now nah, we're gonna try and figure that um, out? That's, that's a great question. So we have an interface right now that is pretty primitive. We're actually in the middle of overhauling it in the next month, but people could give us uh, regular expressions. And now like, but like regular expressions are very hard because like, um, so one of the things I, I haven't mentioned yet is a big motivation for us building what we're building is we're building for accessibility. Like one of the things we discovered was that monitoring and especially observability are just not accessible to most teams. A lot of software teams that we've met, they just don't have the monitoring and observability in place. Like they don't, they either have like, you know, they're, they're, they don't have senior enough developers or they don't have developers with the time or they don't have people with ops ex expertise. And like for someone to like delight in tinkering with a bunch of like regular expressions that need to get applied in order to make something work. Um, that has just been like very, very steep learning curve. So we're, we're rolling out a, a new UI for that in the next, um, in the next month. But like people, people use it. Um, we've, we've had people like, we've had some, some users delight in getting it right, but just watching how they've delighted in getting it right. We're like, this is way too similar to other tools. This is way too hard. <laughs> we, we, we want to be easier. Yeah. Interesting. Are most of your users using, some sort of framework like Rails or Django or or something that maybe even has like the regex matching within it. Um, that's that's a really good question. So um, we um, so we are actually framework agnostic because we we run with an agent that like works on um the like cloud you know the cloud or con uh, container platform itself. Um, and so you know we only we only know what the users' frameworks are if they like write back to our survey or like they talk to us live or something. Um, I will say a lot of um, a lot of our early users, like before we got better monitoring in place, like the big win was inference of the API uh, schema, and a lot of those users were not using a framework because the ones using a framework like already had that, and so we're just now because like our monitoring is is usable now as of the last few quarters ago because we became near real time um we attached it to a bunch of other stuff the pages uh load much faster now than before um like, like uh we're, we're just now starting to get users who have existing schemas and they're still getting value out of us yeah interesting i, I was I'm, I'm not trying to get like <laughs> hop in here and like give product advice but i was just wondering like i remember in django having like that urls file or like rails having that rates routes file what if i could just like drop that in and that would be like instead of writing all this regex it's like already written but yeah if, if you have yeah yeah we have had a feature request for that that's definitely on our roadmap um again uh there hasn't been enough consolidation of frameworks for us to for there to have been a very obvious uh one to pick first but yeah that's that's definitely something as we're cleaning up this this uh, uh ux where we're looking into yeah, cool. And, and one more technical thing. So you talked about eBPF. E I'm, I can't remember if I said that right. But like, so that's an agent. Do I like, is that intercepting traffic between nodes? Is that like on my node? It's just it's sort of picking up the yeah, traffic. Yeah, that, that is a great question too. And uh, <laughs> the probably frustrating answer is it depends on your tech stack. I know it's somewhat frustrating for us because we're like, man, we really wish we had like a single answer for this. But we use Berkeley Packet Filter, which is the BPF subset of eBPF. So we don't have any pro at the moment um so like mostly that's what people think of as the e part um and so our our berkeley packet filters they um they're passive they're not in the 
the um, the flow of data. So they're not intercepting any data. They're just watching in the background. Um, and um, in terms of where it lives, uh, the like technical answer is wherever it gets permission to watch traffic. And so if you're running on something like AWS, um, ECS, Fargate, um, something like that, it, the agent can just like sit on your server and just like watch all the traffic that comes in. It does not need to intercept anything. Um, if you're running something like Kubernetes, uh, the recommended way to run us is um, as a sidecar. And so it's, it's sitting there like watch passively watching everything. It's not, it's not like, it's not creating an additional, like any additional um, uh, overhead uh, because it's, it's passive, but it does have the overhead of like the memory and CPU it takes for the agent to like sit there and watch if, if that makes sense. Um, and then um, the thing that gets more tricky and fun is if you have encrypted traffic, then like we need to live somewhere more involved. Um, and so I'm, um, uh, there are ways around this in sidecars, in like Envoy Istio, that kind of thing. Um, Kubernetes, if you like run us the right way, depending on where you terminate your certificates, um, it can and can't work. Um, we're working on making that a whole lot easier and having a more uniform answer there too. Um, we're starting with an Nginx plugin that's coming out soon. Um, and then like, uh, like uh, mesh integrations are, um, are what to expect from us there. Yeah, cool. Okay, so one thing that's cool about you being an API company is I'm sure you just see a ton of different patterns and trends and, and just like all kinds of different things. Uh, we were talking a little bit beforehand, uh, uh, early on the call about, about these trends. I want to hear just like what you're seeing out there and what you're feeling out there. So I'm, I'm just going to fire off a few trends we talked about and then let me know what you think. So you know, REST is the huge one, the big one, but then GraphQL had, had sort of gotten more traction in the last couple of years. I don't know if that's trending off or where that's going now, but where are you seeing sort of REST versus GraphQL right now? Um, we decided to go with REST because it was dominant at the time. Um, it's become maybe even more dominant <laughs> since we started. Um, when, um, when I first started Akita, there was the question of, do we just double down and do GraphQL or, you know, do we stick with REST? And for us, it was somewhat of an easy decision because if you have GraphQL, you need us less. If you have REST, REST is like the PHP of the internet, you know, like unstructured, untyped, like, you know, people need a lot of help. Um, and so for us, it was, it was like a pretty straightforward decision to go with rest since then. Um, that decision has just gotten validated more and more. Um, according to Postman's state of the API survey, um, over the last few years, like over like 90, 95%, over 90%, um, every year is, is rest. Um, when, when you, when you survey these companies, um, what we've seen is we've seen a lot of companies ask about GraphQL. Um, we've seen them do like GraphQL migrations or at least start on them. Um, this could be part of my own, uh, filter bubble because anything that's full GraphQL, we just don't even really come into contact with. We make it pretty clear. We don't handle at, at this point, but there's, there's a lot of rest out there. And, um, I've learned it's not an accident there's standard, you know, people, people, uh, got the industry to standardize on rest and the standardization of rest has been self-perpetuating. Um, and I, I really appreciated it. I think that you can't just expect something to be cooler than everything else and standardize. Like rest is not cooler than other things. It, it, people decided to standardize on it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm happy about it cause there's, you know, <laughs> uh, stuff to build on top of rest. But, um, but I, I think standardization is very different than a product being the best product or the coolest product or, or anything like that. Yeah, sure. I do still love rest. Like, it's so easy to sort of pick up a new, someone else's API and just like, uh, yeah yeah you don't need to there. know anything extra it also doesn't lull you into a sense of like false 
hope. Yeah. Like rest doesn't claim to do anything for you yeah. and it does everything it claims to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What about like a GRPC? Do you see anything like that? Or is that, I mean, that's probably even much less than, than um, we see some GRPC. We see a lot more GraphQL than GRPC, to be honest. I think like GRPC seems to be dominant um, at some of the bigger companies like, you know, DoorDash or Lyft, you'll see a bunch of GRPC. Um, but like at the smaller companies, I almost never see GRPC. Yeah. Yeah, it's, sure. it's like if I, if I see something that's non-REST, it's, it's likely GraphQL. Yeah. Okay. Another trend, you know, microservices has been a big hot topic for 10 years now and, and back and forth on different things. In terms of the traffic that you see, is it a lot of like end user traffic coming in like through the, the sort of front door or is it a lot of communication between different services like microservice type things and that? Do you do, you do both? What do you see? Um, we see both, but I will say... Uh, there's a lot less inter-surface traffic that, than I expected. Initially, when I started Akita, I thought the reason it's hard to understand prod is because of microservices. And, you know, like that was the justification for why you needed to do tracing and observability and all this stuff. What I realized was it's hard to understand prod because prod is really messy. And like a lot of these people with monoliths, they also have trouble understanding prod. They don't know what all their endpoints are. Like even one service has a lot of endpoints. And so um, what we've been seeing is like, yeah, like some of our users will set up like different projects and have different services. We actually started out with a service graph offering that was like monitor across your services. Almost none of our users like use that ever. They all like the idea because they're like, oh, we have more than one service. But in reality, like each team kind of works on one service. You don't really need to do that stuff unless you have like a big cross service bug. And if that's the case, like, like that's sort of out of the purview of Akita anyway. Um, and like, you probably do need to use something fancy to like trace across everything or like, I don't know, you just think about it real hard and you talk about it and you find it. But like most stuff, like, like, well, well I, I guess like of, of, of the users that we, we've been encountering, like most people have not actually that many services they're like we're, we're working on it we're getting more services and like no you, you don't actually need to like it, it's, it's really cool like I, I think microservice is one of those things that's like not for everybody and um like if people have multiple services we're not seeing like a lot of cross-service action we actually like put our like cross-service feature on ice for until like there is more demand for it um because it's, it's really like most like the common case is like a team has got some endpoints and you're and you're just trying to make sure they're good yeah, cool. So one thing a few of your answers have touched on, I think, is is this idea that you put out there around the 99% developer. So can you tell us sort of what that topic is, or what that concept is? Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I, I wrote in... Uh, an essay some time ago, I, f I forget what year it was even, <laughs> uh, called Building for 99% Developers. And the title was inspired by a blog post Scott Hanselman at Microsoft wrote um, about um, what he called dark matter developers. And Scott Hanselman's uh, take on these developers was like, look, there's so many developers out there using non-hip stuff. You know, they're like in the middle of America, they're in other countries, they're using like VB script. Um, they're not, they're not using microservices. They're not using Terraform. They're not using all this other stuff. And I'm, um, I realized that this is actually a, a much more general thing than, um, than like Scott described, or I even realized, which is we're all 99, like, like they're actually like, 
I don't know, like I, probably the number of developers at the fangs like comprises a good part of that 1%. You know what I mean? Like if you're not, if you're not in a company that has like 10 teams that do developer productivity and DevOps and DevOps productivity and like dev testing and dev tools and all this stuff, like you probably are, uh, the needs that you have probably are quite different from what a lot of these conference speakers are talking about. Um, they're probably different from what a lot of like the Twitter trends, uh, hype up. And, um, how I noticed this was when, when we were first starting out with Akita, we had like a splash page that was like, stuff is bad. It can be better. Like do a call with me. And, you know, people, people showed up and it was, you know, people who like weren't in my network already. It was people who were like smart people using different tech stacks than what, you know, people told me that people were, were using. And, um, they were just like, you know, I have some needs. Cause you know, I'd be like, okay, so like, we don't even have really a product yet. Like, to, like, tell me, like, what, what, what's going on here? And I'm, um, you know, what, what we learned was, um, for us specifically, that monitoring and observability tools that claim to be drop in, that claim to be accessible, that claim to be all this stuff, actually, we're leaving a lot of people behind. Um, and 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 like the gen, the more general phenomenon I discovered was that these people were always very like quiet and embarrassed when they told me this, like. You know, I I would user interview them because I'd be like, hey, if you have time, like, I'd love to ask you just like, what's your tech stack? What's your tool chain? Like, where are your gaps? Like anything like, you know, and, and like what I had been taught for like a good product interview is you don't ask specific to your product. You just ask. And they were always like super embarrassed to be like, well, like, you know, like we're modernizing. We're going to get some like microservices right now. It's a monolith using the PHP. Like we can't even use Grafana. Like our endpoints are too old. We don't know what our endpoints are. You know, like they kind of like mumble through this parts they're like but we're gonna use graphql next quarter and i'm like look like you don't have like i i'm having like you know like like dozens of these interviews like you don't have like i'm I'm seeing this everywhere like you you can tell me and like what what you know once i would say something like that they'd be like oh yeah yeah, yeah like yeah this, this is who we are um and so like what, what I realized was there, there's a lot more developers out there with like older tech stacks or like the gap between like what they, like what their aspirational tech stack is, what they think it should be. And like what it actually is, is quite wide. And like a lot of tooling, a lot of, um, like developer influencing is done based on the aspirational rather than reality. And, and so like, I, I started saying this because like, I, I felt like we were building for reality and our investors are like, but what about GraphQL? And like, is there like a service mesh you can build on top of? And I'm like, no, like in reality, it's, it's super fragmented. Like it's, it's all rest. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I wish I, I had a better answer to this, but you know, like reality is actually kind of rough. And like, if we're going to build something that actually is good for developer experience, we have to, we have to start acknowledging that this like fragmented reality, these tech stacks are hyper fragmented. Um, super heterogeneous um even people who like use graphql or something nice that there's like a nice tool chain built on top of they have like they're like three other like you know a hundred other like legacy subsystems over there that like they're just kind of shoving under the rug but like everyone lives in fear that they're going to get an alert in the middle of the night where they're going to have to root cause something involving that service everyone lives in fear that like you know, they can't ever deprecate that service because there's users depending on it. No one knows what it does. And it's just like this like corrosive acid. It's getting worse over time. And like, 
like it's not it's not hip to talk about this like every time i write a blog post with legacy in the title no one clicks on it <laughs> like um like this is like this is just the reality of software and it and it, it's getting like software is getting older like as time like that's how time works <laughs> so we we need to start talking about some of this stuff more and it doesn't just have to do with akita like akita isn't just built for legacy systems in fact there's like tons of legacy systems we don't work super great for but i feel like we need to start talking about like software reality Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, uh, that's resonating with me, especially like being on those calls and be like, no, I, I swear next quarter we're, we're like migrating this stuff and next quarter it never actually comes. Yeah. But it's just like yeah. A way to like push that off. Yeah. I call it Zeno's migration. Cause like you, like you have the scheduled catch up next quarter. You're like, how's your GraphQL migration going? They're like still the same, but next quarter it's really going to happen. So we don't want to invest. Like, well, it's kind of like the, like, like, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I, I do this sometimes. I have friends like this where they're like, I'm not going to buy the new clothes until like I, I lose weight or until like my style gets better until like I like move to that city that I'm actually not going to move to but I keep on saying I'm going to move to like you know Copenhagen so I need to get a, a new wardrobe when I move there it's like no 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 no. like you live in like whatever like you, this is the way you look this is your style like embrace yourself and like make your life better now yep yep oh man that's funny uh one thing you said going back with just like a lot of developer tools and and things that are out there are like pitching towards this aspirational one like how are they, how are they doing? Is the, is the aspirational market big enough that people can still um, buy? Are they just buying it in hope and not using it? Or is there like enough people that are far enough ahead that that those sorts of developer tools are doing? Like, what does that look like? There's so much stuff that's bought in hope. Um, I uh, like I don't want to. The only one I'll call out is Kubernetes. <laughs> but you know, like a lot of people don't need Kubernetes, but they Kubernetes. Um, and uh, and I think I think you, you can believe other stuff. Like I I've had um, I've had user interviews with with people where I asked them like you know how, like how many how many seats of your company actually like get used for this like you know software that does like pretty advanced monitoring or observability and they're you know like these are like public companies and they're like less than 10 less than 10 seats actually get used it's like our most senior principal engineers um and, the, and ones like, that, the ones that push for it really hard and they love it yeah yeah and, and like I, I think at some of these companies like they, they have seven figure contracts yeah. um and it, it's not that they don't get used at all, actually. Like, I, I think that, like, so in some of these cases, like, I, I could be being unfair because, like, you know, you're, like, 10, like, top engineers using this tool, like, like a few times a year might actually justify that level of contract. But, like, it doesn't it, – it's not the story at all. Like, everyone needs this or, like, you have to learn to do this or, or something like this. And I think a lot of these tools, like, the hype is, like, this is, like, the new technology. You have to learn it. It's part of your skill set as an engineer, and that, that's just simply not true. Um, and so I think that there's, there's like a few categories. One is like, you know, like some of these tools get bought and they're used by like the like most senior top engineers at like top, top companies. Um, and then other people are like buying smaller licenses. So it like hurts less, like when like they don't get used as much or they're just like, oh, we're just not ready to use this yet or, or something like that. Um, and you know, like some of these companies, like they, they have a lifespan, right? Like once people realize this, like over the course of a few years, like it, it, it kind of goes away, but like maybe that investment and that attention could have like, like, you know, been directed towards a company that was more lasting. I don't know. I'm that's, you know, counterfactuals are hard. Um, but um, I, so, some of this adoption is just in industry wide. Um, like I think if you look at like the amount of adoption of microservices or Kubernetes like that, um, I, I think it is more widespread than it 
probably should have been. And we, we encounter a lot of companies um, with very smart teams who they're like an outside contractor set up our Kubernetes. I actually have no clue how to change this thing. Um, and like, maybe they didn't need Kubernetes. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but like that, that like that's, that's, that's something we've seen. And then um, I, I, th I think a lot of, a lot of this is, is hype. But like I, I don't know like sometimes sometimes you get like hype building on top of hype and then like you know you have like this like hype circle and then so like like if like like you know like I will not I will not call things out but let's say you <laughs> had like that's the hard a, part right like yeah so, let's say you had like yeah. a, a new language and then um like people start using that new language because it's hyped and then people are like we're gonna build this tools on top of this new language because it is hyped and then we're gonna build tools for those tools because it's hyped like. It doesn't matter if like the base hype thing actually was useful or not. If there's enough hype, you kind of have a hype ecosystem going and like maybe like that'll all like dissolve after some time, but like that hype ecosystem is real. Like the people using that language do need those tools now and the people using those tools need those tools for their, those tools. You know, you know what I mean? So it's kind of hard to tell sometimes. Man, that's funny. I can't, I can't tell if you're calling out a specific language or not because I have like a few in mind, but that's, <laughs> that's a hilarious am... thing. No. Yeah. Well, I've been I've been publicly skeptical of this one that has nothing to do with me. So like Wasm, I'll just yeah. put that one out there. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, can you tell us a little bit then, you know, Akita is a, a modern advanced software company. How do you all sort of run? How many services do you have? How do you sort of run and operate those services and orchestrate them? What does that look like? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I will also say I don't hate Wasm. I just have some skepticism because people get very mad at me. <laughs> um, so yeah, at Akita, um, okay, so this might be out of date knowledge. My team might be just like screaming at me like, Gene, this is wrong. Um, but um, we have, so we have a Go and Python um, in uh, JavaScript node, something, I'm, I'm, I'm not a front end person. Tech stack, um, we have, I believe three services. We use Kubernetes. Um, and, uh, we are building on top of Postgres SQL, which I think is the most controversial thing because we have a near real time, uh, data processing of like large amounts of API traffic. Um, every quarter we have a meeting about when is this going to fall over, but then we read like Honeycomb's blog post about how they use Postgres for a long time too, before they built their own columnar <laughs> database. And we're like, okay, we think we can hang on for like one more quarter. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that is, uh, that is what we do. That's cool. Um, so, so you're talking about the 99% developer. I think, are you, are you sort of surprised that you're like working for the 99% developer? Because I look at like your background and I think of the 1% developer, right? You worked at like Facebook, Google, Microsoft, you were an, uh, a professor at Carnegie Mellon. Like how did you, how did you get into the startup world and, and get into uh, sort of the 99% developer? Yeah, I think, I think it's very interesting. Um, I, I think that I definitely was not previously a 99% developer, but I will say like the minute you leave Fang, you kind of are in the 99% developer world. Like, you know, my, my own team um, took a week to set up basic data dog. We still weren't able to set up the dashboards we needed. So like, I very much saw the pain points that our users were telling us. And I'm like, look, like, you know, I hired this team. I think they're really smart, but like, if we're not able to do this stuff, like under the time pressures we have, like who else can't. Um, but how, how I got into all of this was, um, I, I always had this goal of like, we were going to help developers. And, and I feel like I, you know, I, I went to grad school cause I, I, I was drinking the Kool-Aid of, um, we're going to help developers by designing new languages. And again, the, the programming language community gets very mad when I, when, it, when I feel thrown under the bus. So I think this is very important work. Um, but I, I uh, came to realize at some point I wasn't really helping 
like the large numbers of modern web developers that exist out there today um, with some of the stuff I was doing. Because like I, I, I just like, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that like static verification, like proving programs correct, like that's not going to really, that's not what like a PHP developer wants or needs or like, you know, this advice, uh, advanced type system stuff. Like it's just like, it's, it's a different set of use cases. And so I, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about like, well, like web developers are kind of like, like those are the people writing the software that's running our lives, whether we like it or not. Like you have like one car, but you have like a million apps, you know what I mean? And like, um, like, like that software is pervasive. Like it's kind of, uh, written with some of the, you know, worst quote unquote languages out there, according to language experts. And, um, like it's, it's really the wild west of software. And so I, I was very interested in like, how can we help this group of, um, developers. And, and one of the reasons I, um, I was staying in academia was I wasn't really sure like who in industry was helping this group of developers either. Right. Like you, you kind of, um, you have like pockets of people building tools, but like, I, I wasn't convinced that anything like going on at the time was like making the software like less unruly. <laughs> um, and so I, I was always very interested in helping like, you know, mainstream web developers. Um, I went, uh, I embarked on a series of, uh, reasoning and like trying to understand the landscape. And and that's what led me to realize that understanding prod was really the big problem. Like, I I think that it's pretty important to accept that like programs are much bigger than themselves because they're all getting thrown in this, this like giant ecosystem that we call prod. Um, and, and then the one thing led to another and I'm, then I was just like, okay, like I'm willing to help whoever needs the most help in prod. And, you know, if it had ended up being like, you know, 1% companies, I would, I would have been fine with that. It just turns out it wasn't. Um, and, but like, for me, it was always, the question was always, um, how do we have the most impact possible on the largest number of web developers? Yeah, cool. And so, um, can you tell us a little bit about that, that transition specifically from like, academia into Akita like has Akita raised funding and had had you raised funding by the time before you left academia or what, what did that process look like sort of going from um, academia into the startup world yeah so I'm um, in 2018 I was a tenure track um, assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon I um I was actually trying to do research collaborations with industry at the time involving APIs and like looking at logs and um I you know I, I was approaching a bunch of companies saying like hey I think you have these problems that I could solve if you let me like build stuff that analyze your logs basically and they were like yeah we definitely have those problems we would love to do this we could never write a paper with you on this stuff um and so that that got me thinking like maybe I should start a company because like like I became convinced that like looking at people's logs and their traffic was the way to go um and um I was like well okay like if this is, if academia is in the right place to do it because like I have to write papers like that's you know like I, I feel like there's the price to play in every, in every situation. And the price to play in academia is you have to be able to write papers. Like in an in industry, the price to pay to the price to play is you have to be able to sell your product. And like, you know, people, people are find this valuable. And so I, I felt like actually this is something where we may be in a better position to pay the price to pay as a company. And so, um, initially like I had been thinking about the, the incarnation 
that Akita would take very differently. I thought that maybe it was like a GDPR play, maybe it was some kind of security thing. Um, so I just went down my entire LinkedIn and I called everyone in industry, like broader industry that I knew. Like I asked them a, a set of questions and I was like, okay, generally there seems to be a problem where people don't know like what anything is or where anything is in their systems. I feel pretty confident that like, that like I can make some progress on this problem. I don't know exactly what it'll look like. Um, but I'm also pretty confident that I can, you know, raise some money to do something. And so I took a leave, um, academic schedules work so that you have to declare your leave pretty early. I also knew that like, if I was bought into, um, the thing enough to take a leave, like it would be easier to raise funding. And so in 2018, I raised funding on like, you know, the original V0 of Akita, which was like, we're going to do something with APIs and security. Um, it was pre-product pre-team. It was just me being like, I believe this space like needs a solution. Um, and our investors, um, actually have been really patient with us. They, they, they were sort of like, okay, we're going to give you a bunch of money. You'll have until 2023. <laughs> um, and, uh, like figure it out. And so like, since then, you know, we like pivoted out of the security thing. We got a team, built a team around doing, um, doing API monitoring and observability, really found our foothold with the 99% developers. This last year, um, our solution finally became real time, which like actually let us test it. Cause before it was very hypothetical before you can really try out like the full thing. Cause I think like, you know, there were two, two big milestones technically one, like when we first started being able to infer full API schemas, which was in 2020. Um, and then 2022 was when we started, being real time. Um, and so there was like a lot of tech R and D in between, um, the two. And, uh, yeah, now, um, we're trying to, <laughs> we're trying to get to the next stages in 2023. Cause, uh, you know, that's, that's the, the year we do our next fundraise. It's the year, um, we, we start like, uh, really, really growing, um, growing, growing awareness about what we're doing, that kind of thing. Like we, we have, we have the basic product built, um, we've been iterating with a growing number of users. Users um, seem like they're getting more and more happy with it. So we're ready to, to hit the, the rest of the world. Awesome. How big is the Akita team right now? Um, we are seven people. Seven. Nice. And then, I mean, what does it look like in 2023? I know it's a big year for you. Are there certain features or is it awareness? Like, what are you focused on to really um, keep Akita going? Um, yeah, so it's, it's features and awareness. So for us, like we have this core API, uh, monitoring solution where, um, you know, users across a lot of platforms can onboard pretty easily at this point. And then you get an overview of like, these are all of your endpoints. Here's what's slow. Here is what's throwing errors. Um, we have some basic alerting, but there's, um, you know, we, we've got a bunch of requests about what people would actually want to make this a full fledged, like this is, you know, um, this is what it would take for me to, you know, integrate this here. This is what I want to do to do this here. So there's, there's like a, a long list of those. Um, I think that in, in terms of like for us, like, getting that mature enough to get ourselves out of beta <laughs> is, is a big goal. Like being able to expand, um, out, out of beta and making that whole process smooth is going to be a big milestone. Um, raising awareness about what we do. I think a lot of people like may have heard of us at this point. Um, but even a lot of those people don't know like what it is that we do. Our own users even said until I actually used you, I, 
I didn't realize I could get all this information. Like I haven't used anything that could tell me all this information just by plugging in like this before. And so I'm really, um, you know, telling that story better and making that story more accessible so that people don't have to all the way use us to understand like what we could be. Cause we've also had users where, um, we didn't realize until after, but like something went wrong in their install and they just thought that was what Akita was. And we're like, no, 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 no. Like, um, and they were like, well, you know, everything else we used was manual and it didn't look very good in the beginning. And so like, we thought Akita was like that too. And, and so I, I think that like really, really, uh, telling better the story and like setting people's expectations about, you know, the, no, like there is, there is some magic here. Like we should be able to tell you a lot of stuff without you doing a lot of work. Um, that that's a big goal for, for 2023. Very cool. Uh, personal feature question for me. So I do a lot with like API Gateway and Lambda. I'm guessing that's tricky with with VPF. Oh like, yeah, is that Lambda. We don't work with Lambda. So okay. there, there's also this list of like uh, PaaS platforms that we don't work well with yet. Yeah. Um, with Lambda, the the tricky thing is we can't easily see. Um, we, we we don't get libpcap permissions by default, and so we have to do something else. Yep. Okay. Well. That, there's a there's a huge pool out there of, of non lambda users. It's still early for a lot. Yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. So but we do we do have that. like a growing queue of lambda users who are like, hey, like you know, yeah. we actually don't get this stuff with lambda automatically. We would love to have it. And so yeah, lambda is is very high on the list. Cool, cool. Uh, I'll, I'll be looking forward to that. So yeah, this has been great. Like I, I love your your sort of notion of the ninety nine percent developer. You know, if people want to go check that out, um, they can see that on the Akita software blog. There's a there's a post about it. There's uh, I believe you talked at Strange Loop about that. Good video there. So if people want to check that out, uh, if people want to find out more about you or Akita, where should where should they be looking? I am Twitter is where I spend a lot of time still. <laughs> so I'm uh, Jean Kassour on Twitter, J-E-A-N-Q-A-S-A-U-R. And then Akita is at Akita Software on Twitter. And we, we post all of our updates there. Um, we also um, we also have a newsletter. Um, so if you go on our website, akitasoftware.com, um, if you go to the blog, you can subscribe to our blog. Um, and uh, there are a few other posts that are outside of our blog sometimes too. Awesome. Great. Well, I've loved learning about Akita today. Uh, Gene Yong, thanks for joining Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thanks, Alex. Great to talk.